This morning we return to the Gospel of Matthew, and Lord willing, in this uh, session from the pulpit, we will um, complete the Gospel of Matthew, beginning here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 26. We begin what is known as the Passion of Christ, the suffering, the death, and of course the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the word of the Lord through the Apostle Matthew, chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Let us pray. Father, we humbly ask that you would instruct us by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit, as we read these perhaps too familiar words and as we venture through this part of the gospel where we witness the suffering and the death of our Lord, we pray that these events would become real and fresh in our minds, in our hearts, that we would meditate upon them, that we would seek to understand their meaning and Father, most importantly, that we would find ourselves by grace through faith as beneficiaries of this wonderful act of mercy. We pray that you would be with us this time right now through your Holy Spirit, granting us understanding and wisdom and a closer walk, a closer worship of you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> most of you know that I love reading. It's probably not a surprise. But you may have a, a notion in your mind that, that uh, pastors, ministers enjoy sitting around and reading systematic theologies. Well, I have a confession to make. <laughs> I don't. I find them tedious. I find it slow going. I think perhaps one of the benefits I derive from the Thursday evening teaching sessions as it forces me to read the systematic theologies that I have. I find it difficult to read long sessions, long sections on one topic. That's my ADD. I also find that in most systematic theologies there's a tacit demand that I accept that writer's perspective above all others. And I reject that. That's my BAD. And as I read systematic theologies, I, I, I can't help but think that if the Lord had given his resurrection or his revelation in a systematic form like that, the true religion would not have gone very far. My, my brother enjoys them. He reads them for pleasure. I read histories and biographies. Because when I read a systematic theology, I feel forced by the author to make a choice. That, that his perspective is the perspective. And that I'm not to accept any new perspectives. And for those of you who understand the current debate over justification that's going on within the Reformed community, you'll understand what I meant by new perspective. Now, there, is, there are times when a choice is necessary. So I don't want you to get me wrong into thinking that, that, that I espouse a view that just kind of lets whatever come, come. And most of you who know me know that I'm quite opinionated. 
But there are times when choices are not only not necessary, they can be very damaging. When the choice is between truth and falsehood, between the doctrine of the Trinity or Unitarianism, between Jesus Christ as the eternal God or as a God, or as just a man who was possessed mightily by God, then those choices are, are not only necessary, but, but biblically they're easy to make. When you read your Bible, you, you understand that the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, Jesus is referred to and acts as God, and yet there is but one God. And so the doctrine of the Trinity, though we may not be able to fully comprehend it, it's a truth, and we make a choice. Within theology, there are also choices that need to be made between mutually exclusive views. For instance, which is primary, the sovereignty of God or the sovereignty of human will? We have to make a choice there. Over the years, I've heard people say, I'm neither a Calvinist nor an Arminian. Well, then you're dead. Because you've got to be one or the other. You may not want to take the name Calvinist, you may not want to be labeled an Arminian, but either God is sovereign in all his acts, or man is sovereign. It's not a joint sovereignty, and so a choice must be made. But I will submit to you that in most cases within biblical theology, no choice is required between two biblically founded perspectives. If you are looking at a different facet of a gem, that does not mean you're looking at a different gem. And because Scripture is not presented to us in a systematic format, but rather a revelation history, and the theology of God is woven into the life of God's people as it is related through the narratives, through the histories, through the letters, and through their songs and psalms, there's a lot of different perspectives, different facets to each individual theological truth that we find in Scripture. I tend to enjoy theologians who are unthreatened by others' perspectives. I also tend to find them very hard to find. And so I do and I advocate that when reading theologies, a man or a woman read from different schools of thought, not merely different authors within a school. Don't be afraid to read from a Lutheran author or a, or a Methodist or an Anglican. And, and it may surprise you, I have a number of Roman Catholic theologians in my collection. That doesn't mean I'm a Methodist. It doesn't mean I'm an Anglican leaning toward Rome, as most Anglicans do. It doesn't mean I'm adopting the theology of that writer. It means I, I, I enjoy the different perspective that many of these men bring. Many of them are believers. Some of them are not. But they bring a perspective on God's word. Maybe it's just the text. If they don't understand the life within the text... But if they understand the life, they're standing at a different vantage point, both in time and in mental perspective, and they're seeing a facet of it that I can't get from this other guy. And to me, it's like turning a gem around in one's hand and allowing the light to reflect its glory off the multiple facets. Knowing that you have but one gem of God's revealed truth, 
and also knowing that no man alive nor dead other than Jesus Christ has ever fully seen it in its glory. And so when we come to this passage, the passion of Christ, this is one of those places where when you pick up the theologies of the church, you find different perspectives. And you also find men who say, well, so-and-so is just wrong. And you can't view it that way because that's heretical and that's blasphemous and you have to see it this way. And there are some men who have very famously seen it completely wrong. Some of you are sure are familiar with Albert Schweitzer, the famous physician, philosopher, missionary to Africa. Schweitzer had a very interesting perspective. He wrote a book that was titled in its English version, The Quest for the Historic Jesus. And in doing so, back in the 1920s, he started a, mo a movement of theologians who will go through the scriptures, go through the gospels, and they will decide what Jesus actually said and what was put in by the church later on. How they do that, I don't know. Well, actually, I do know how they do it. They do it by holding up little colored pieces of cards, which is somewhat childish, but what they're doing is childish. Schweitzer believed that Jesus was delusional, that he was deceived, that he had a damaging and eventually fatal messianic complex, that he was no more than a Galilean rabbi, but that he somehow came to believe that he was the Messiah of Israel. And when he realized that he was not going to be accepted as Israel's Messiah, he developed a martyr complex and reasoned within himself that the only way he could make effective his messiahship was to die. And so he died a mistaken and delusioned man. Schweitzer believes that he derives this from the scriptures. He believes that Jesus saying, for example, there are some among you who shall not taste death before he sees the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that this generation shall not pass away until all these things come to pass. He interprets these passages as Jesus believing that the end of the age and the kingdom of God was coming quickly. Even though the very same passages in the Olivet Discourse tell us that no man knows, not even the Son of God, not even the Son of Man. Schweitzer was not able to separate between what was going to happen to Israel within that generation and the event about which the disciples were asking, the timing of which no man knows, including Jesus. Jesus was not delusional. Schweitzer was delusional, but not Jesus. It's a shame that he didn't live at, at the time. Well, actually, they were alive concurrently. And in fact, maybe Schweitzer did read C.S. Lewis's answer to those who, who, who say such things about Jesus. Lewis said Jesus was either telling the truth or he was a madman or he was insane. He was one or the other. He was either telling the truth about himself as the Son of God and the Savior of the world or he was, in fact, a madman. If, in fact, you conclude that he was a madman, I wonder why you'd spend the time that Spicer spent studying his life. So that's an easy one to reject. It's not... It's not coming from this passage that Jesus was delusional. What comes out of these passages in Matthew and Mark and Luke especially was that Jesus was focused on his mission. 
He said earlier on, it was for this purpose I was sent into the world. And he was talking about his death. And that was within the first year of his ministry. For this purpose I have come into the world, to die. Not, not later on when, when the Jews would reject me and the Sanhedrin would condemn me and my disciples would flee from me. That's not when Jesus accepted his mission. But at the beginning, he was born to die. And so we have other views that are far more orthodox than Schweitzer's and that their proponents ask us to accept solely as the proper way to view the passion of Christ. The traditional Reformed view is that Christ suffered as a sacrifice to pay the debt for his people, a debt that they could not pay, that he was the Passover lamb or the Paschal lamb, and certainly this view is supported in the passage I just read when Jesus said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. Drawing attention not only to the, one of those three feasts of Israel, the Passover, but what this particular Passover would signify to his disciples and to the world. And the Son of Man must be delivered up for crucifixion. These are not two disassociated thoughts, the Passover and the crucifixion. But consider the way the disciples must have reacted when they heard him. It's been a year since we looked at the passage, but remember what started all of this back in chapter 24, verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came up to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things be will be. And tell us what this will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Tell us, when will these things be? And throughout the next two chapters, what we call the Olivet Discourse, Jesus steadfastly refused to give the timing of anything about which he talked. And immediately afterwards, in verse 1 of chapter 26, it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, in two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is dying. There's your answer. You see that? Now, chapters 24 and 25 were also the answer. They were the answer that looked out into the future, the nearer future with regard to the nation of Israel, a future that was culminated in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, but then a broader and further future talking about the return of the Son of Man at the end of the age. But the disciples undoubtedly were still wondering in their mind, when? Give us, give us some tangible, give us some calendar dates we can put in our iPhone. And so he says, in two days, you know the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be crucified. There's your answer. So the paschal perspective, Jesus dying as the Lamb of God, the Passover lamb is supported by the text. It's supported by other passages as well. Famously, in John chapter 10, in Jesus' discourse on the, on the shepherd, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So this idea of the good shepherd himself being a sacrifice. And Paul, of course, fleshes it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, for Christ our Passover, 
also has been sacrificed. So there's no argument to the concept that Jesus, as he goes into Jerusalem this last time, at the Passover feast, there's no argument that he himself is the culmination and the meaning of the Passover lamb. That in him, that second death will pass over all who are covered by his blood. The entire imagery of the Passover in Egypt and the Passover feast centers and points to Jesus Christ as our sacrifice. And within Reformed theology, this concept fits into a theological network. That's one of the weaknesses of systematic theologies. They build a network. They build a framework. And they piece together the different aspects of God's revelation in a form that is suitable to the mind of the uninspired author of that theology. Our weakness is that we tend to fall right in step with it. And we tend to think along the lines of this particular author or this particular school or denomination. And when someone comes to us who is speaking from a different perspective, it's like he's speaking in tongues and I don't have the gift of interpretation. And our reaction is often violently against a brother in Christ who is speaking on the basis of the scriptures, but he's not speaking the language of our network. And the theological network that focuses on Christ as the paschal lamb is one that emphasizes the penal nature of justification, the penalty of sin and rebellion, and the debt that we owe as individual human beings to a holy God was met in the person and by the blood of Jesus Christ, our paschal lamb. Amen. That's true. There's not a shred of error in that statement. It is truth. But does it exhaust the truth? That's the question. It's not that this or that systematic theologian is wrong. The question is not, is he right or wrong? If he's wrong, reject it. But if he's right, if it's right there in the scripture, the next question is, has he exhausted the truth? Let me give you a hint. No, <laughs> he hasn't. None of us have. None of us perhaps will. But as we enter into the passion of Christ, most of us are coming from a perspective of Jesus going to the cross as a sacrifice, going to the cross as a lamb. And while that is true, and it is beautiful, and it is important and glorious, it is not comprehensive, it is not exhaustive. And so if we turn to a Lutheran writer, Scandinavian by the name of Gustav Allen, wrote a book, I think 40 or 50 years ago now. The title of the book was Christus Victor. And it was all about the passion of Christ. What it means is Christ the victor. Christ the conqueror. 
It brings back to our mind the biblical fact that Jesus' ministry is frequently spoken of in terms of conflict, struggle, and even violence. In Matthew chapter 12, we looked at this several years ago. Jesus says, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his goods unless he first bind the strong man? And who is it that's entering the house to carry off the goods? It's Jesus. The strong man is the devil. And those who are his possessions are not his possessions by right, but by theft. The souls of the elect... And Jesus, who leads captivity captive, is going to bind the strong man and carry off all that is his. These are words of force and conflict. Matthew chapter 26, in this chapter later on in verse 64, he says, nevertheless, I mean, this is in the midst of his trial, of his suffering, of his scourging. And he says, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So we look at this and we read through this and we see a very morbid scene. The field of battle, though, and the weapons of warfare are not carnal. And so when we read it and we look at it, what we read doesn't bring to our mind's eye visions of clashing armies. What we see is the shepherd being stricken and the sheep scattering. We see denial. We see betrayal. We see a man, a righteous man, in whom there was no sin, being led as a lamb to the slaughter. We see wicked men, Caiaphas and Herod, gloating over their perceived victory. We see Pilate asking, what is truth? Pilate, powerful Roman procurator of Judea, doesn't have a clue what to do. Caught between forces he cannot control. Pathetic. Scared of the man who has no power over him, and yet says, you say rightly, I am a king. My kingdom is not of this world, but if it was, my people would fight. Do you not know that I can call down legions of angels at this moment? Christus victor. And yet it's a victory that we're not used to seeing. We're used to seeing it more in the, in the, in the form of, of Maximus and Gladiator, of blood, a visible show of power. Undoubtedly what the disciples were looking for. But not the plan of God. I think Paul recognized, even though he speaks more than any other New Testament writer, of the aspect of Christ as the paschal lamb and of justification as a payment for sin's debt. And yet he says in Colossians chapter 2 of Jesus, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. 
In that passage, he's talking about Christ's death, taking away the certificate of law that was against us, having nailed it to the tree. And in doing so, he says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he made a public display of them. And we're reading in, in Matthew, it's like, that doesn't seem like what we're reading. It doesn't seem very triumphant. Now, when we get to chapter 28, all's going to be good, right? Because that's the resurrection. And that's how our minds have been trained to see the triumph is in the resurrection. That was really the, the um, triumphal parade, as it were. Because if we read Ephesians and we read Paul's interpretation of the Psalms, we understand that Christ's victory was secured before and during his death and his time in the grave. We don't really know what he was doing then, but I have a feeling it was pretty awesome. And, and I don't even think it's right for us to put it in nebulous, abstract terms like the triumph of good over evil, of right over wrong. David Wells says it is personal. God overwhelming the devil. I think it was personal. I think Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord, our champion, took it to the devil. I don't think it's in terms of, of the yin and the yang, of darkness and light. All of those things are involved. But I think the confrontation was face to face. And I think our Lord said to the devil, you lost. Give me what is mine. Christus victor. And that is what we are reading about. There's not much in, Je in Matthew 26 and 27 that will sound triumphant as we read it. But to the ear of faith, to an ear that has been trained by hearing the prophetic word of Scripture, the passion of Christ will resound a greater triumph than David's in the land. And every step of the way, though we read despair, though we read scourging, trial, tribulation, abandonment, and betrayal, what we see is Christ in his victory, marching in conquest over the devil, through his death, destroying the one who had the power of death, even the devil. Gustav Aulen emphasized Christ's triumph through death, but he minimized Christ's sacrifice for sin. Again, he's a theologian. His perspective is the right one. Reformed theology focuses on the penal aspect of the atonement, that payment for sin. Christ's payment for a debt we could never pay. But at times we lose focus on the incredible triumph that we have in Christ Jesus. At times we lose focus on the power of the death of Jesus Christ. That in bringing to death one in whom there was no sin, death destroyed itself. That Satan in thinking that he had gained the victory over the Son of God, actually brought about his own eternal destruction. And we, we are the beneficiaries of what our champion has accomplished for us. 
But in all these things, Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The victory, the power, is ours. Not that we earned it. We certainly did not. But by God's grace, we have been given it. And so with so many of the theological perspectives that I read in systematic theologies, every one of them drawn from Scripture, the Reformed theologians focusing on the penal aspect of the atonement, that is right out of the Scriptures. Gustav Aulen focusing on Christus Victor, the triumphant Christ, that is right out of the Scriptures. There's no need to choose between them. It's not either or, it's both and. There's no need to say, I am of Aulin or I am of Calvin. Now, I do need to share something with you as a congregation. Something that we've experienced over years that you may not know about and you may have wondered. But throughout the history of the church, if you refuse to choose, you forego close fellowship with those who make choice a test of fellowship, a test of orthodoxy. Our church is not a confessional church. Though most Reformed Baptist churches in the upstate are confessional churches. Now what that means is we will not sign a statement saying that we adhere completely to the 1689 Baptist Confession or to the Westminster Confession or to the Heidelberg Catechism. The elders of Fellowship Bible Church believe that such documents were written by men who themselves went to the scriptures to find the truths contained there. And those documents have, since their initial writing, been used by men who go to the documents written by the men who went to the scriptures. And even though, personally, I take fewer exceptions with the 1689 Baptist Confession than some men I know who have signed as confessional pastors. For example, I do think the papacy is the Antichrist, one that is disavowed by many modern pastors. I won't sign a confession. I won't, I won't say, this is the perspective that I adhere to, and none other. Or perhaps maybe someday I'll sign them all. That'd be schizophrenic. So we forego close fellowship. Now in that light, and very practically, I would really ask for your fervent prayers for the success of the pastor's fraternal that began at um, Grace Baptist back in March. The second session will be here at Fellowship Bible Church in June and hopefully continuing on quarterly um, so long as the Lord is willing to bless that effort. We earnestly desire the collegiate fellowship of fellow pastors in the upstate, those of reformed mind, but we, we believe that an orthodoxy that sees only one side of the multifaceted truth of God's revelation comes at too high a price. The lamb slain 
is none other than the lion of the tribe of Judah. Christ, our Passover, Christus Victor. Let us pray. Our Father, it is appropriate that we come before you at the Lord's table this day. May our minds be filled with the thought of the body of Christ broken on our behalf and the blood of Christ shed for our sins. But also might our mind's eye see his triumph, not only in the resurrection, but even in his suffering, even in his death, that he was in the process of conquering the grave, sin, and the devil on our behalf. And may our hearts and our minds be encouraged that as the Apostle reaffirms, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through our Lord who loves us, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask if um, Josh and Tim, if you would help with the elements this morning.